Welcome to the ACCP Resident Fellowship Podcast, a podcast for residents by residents. My name is Christian Kroll, and I'm the current PGY2 Emergency Medicine Clinical Pharmacy Resident at UW Health in Madison, Wisconsin. We'll be joined on the show today by Dr. Julie Farah, who is the current Critical Care Pharmacy Resident at the University of Colorado. Welcome, Julie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be with all of you today. So, Julie, something I always like to do with all of my uh, people that I have on the podcast is, would you be able to describe your pharmacy career this far and your current position at the University of Colorado? Absolutely. So, I graduated from undergrad at Louisiana State University with a biology degree. I moved to Memphis to attend the University of Tennessee College of Pharmacy, and I completed my PGY1 residency at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center, where I learned just so much about how to be an independent practitioner. And I knew after that that I wanted to do critical care and that I wanted research to be an integral part of my pharmacy career after completion of my PGY1. So I matched into the critical care program at the University of Colorado School of Pharmacy. And we're a very research focused program. Uh, and we also like to work hard and play hard. Now, today on the podcast, we have an interesting topic that is still quite relevant throughout the world. We'll be discussing different strategies and approaches to the therapeutic management of pain agitation, and delirium, otherwise known as PAD, specifically in COVID-19 positive patients. Recently, there's been a decent amount of data that has been published describing the difficulties of managing PAD in these COVID-19 intubated patients. Now, before we dive too deep into the discussion, Julie, would you be able to describe a little more about what PAD is and what the standard of practice is in the non-COVID population? So I want to start by saying that one of the pillars of pad management is analgosedation. sedation. We know that there are multiple reasons for mechanically ventilated patients to be in pain, and that is including but not limited to the ET tube, various lines, drains, and other physical manipulations that the patient undergoes, and then even being in bed and immobile for prolonged periods of time can contribute to pain that they might experience as well. So initiating sedation with an analgesic like fentanyl or hydromorphone is essential. And the entire premise of sedation in mechanically ventilated patients is to promote vent synchrony and then eventually facilitate extubation. So the addition of other sedatives like propofol, midazolam, dexmedetomidine, and even ketamine uh, may be for that reason. Patients often require deeper sedation uh, towards the beginning of their time on the vent within the first 48 to 72 hours typically in order to tolerate just the foreign nature of the vent breathing for them. However, we do know that lighter sedation leads to fewer days on the mechanical ventilator, and this is why we do aim for lighter sedation goals, such as a RAS score or a Richmond Agitation Sedation Scale score of negative two to one. And we perpetually attempt to find that balance between enough sedation to tolerate the vent, but ultimately achieve extubation. Thank you, Julie, for that great overview of PAD and why we do the things we do. Now, as with many different disease states, I like to ask, how do the current guidelines say we should treat these patients? Now, this is a difficult question since there's not yet been much published in the PAD management for these COVID-19 positive patients. There is some consensus statements, review articles, and professional organization recommendations that are available, which include the Surviving Sepsis Management of COVID-19 Guidelines, the ASEP Field Guide to ICU Care in the Emergency Department, and many others that are constantly being churned out. Now, Julie, from my experience in managing these patients in the ED and ICU, I've seen that these COVID patients can be really difficult, not only to initially manage on ventilation, on ventilation with their disease, but are also difficult because of just how sensitive they are to medications and ventilator settings. 
Have you had a similar experience in Colorado and specifically in regards to medications? How do these patients' treatment differ than other diseases that you've treated in the MICU and the SICU? So I mentioned previously that the goals of providing analgesia and sedation evolve around successful ventilation and eventual extubation. But this becomes a lot more difficult in a patient that has extremely non-compliant lungs, like those patients with ARDS, which is a common finding, unfortunately, in our patients with COVID-19 who do require intubation. So these patients may require deeper sedation in order to comfortably, or as much as we can understand what their comfort level is, tolerate the extreme vent settings, such as really high peeps that they may require for appropriate oxygenation and ventilation. Analgesics are still a cornerstone like fentanyl, um, but they may be used for prolonged periods of time and at higher doses. So what we can see eventually develop may be tachyphylaxis, uh, in which case switching to a different agent like hydromorphone could be of benefit. And then sedatives such as propofol and midazolam be, may be required also at higher doses for deeper sedation. Propofol at higher rates, typically at greater than five mg per k per hour for prolonged periods of time, may place patients at higher risk of PRIS or propofol-related infusion syndrome. And uh, I have seen a few COVID patients with green urine this, this year as well, which obviously is not necessarily a prognostic sign that your patients are progressing to PRIS, but still something that's rather interesting. Using midazolam for prolonged periods of time also can cause accumulation of that drug, especially in patients who do have renal dysfunction. And while we probably all know that the risk of delirium that benzodiazepines confers, uh, we do find ourselves having to use those benzos plus propofol plus sometimes another agent like ketamine in some of these patients just to achieve appropriate vent synchrony. I expect more data will probably be coming out on the use of continuous infusion ketamine for anal sedation in the next few years because of its use in the COVID pandemic. Uh, and at the University of Colorado Hospital, we are seeing the use of ketamine at rates up to one to five mg per pig per hour, and sometimes even higher in these patients to provide that optimal dissociative effect, again, trying to promote deeper sedation. And sometimes when patients have severe ARDS and deeper sedation isn't cutting it, we then might have to move to the use of continuous neuromuscular blockade, again, for vent synchrony and hopefully attenuation of some of those acute inflammatory ARDS processes. Julie, I completely agree with everything that you just mentioned. I think it's also worth noting, too, that I've seen more neuromuscular blockers in the last few months than I could possibly count. Now, the usage of neuromuscular blockers like cis-atricurium and atricurium in patients with ARDS was, prior to COVID, supported by several different professional societies in the management of moderate to severe ARDS. This was, however, tested through the recently published ROSE trial that showed that a continuous infusion of cisatricurium did not improve any pa important patient outcomes compared to intermittent neuromuscular blocker boluses on an as-needed basis. Now, guidelines like the Surviving Sepsis COVID-19 guidelines recommend that a paralytic drips should be reserved for those with whom intermittent dosing may not suffice, such as those with persistent ventilator dyssynchrony and patients needing ongoing deep sedation for their prone ventilation or persistently high plateau pressures while on the ventilator. Now, Julie, since in my experience at UW Health, COVID-19 ICU patients reach these inclusion criteria usually quite frequently. What should one be thinking about if one is to put a patient on a continuous infusion of a neuromuscular blocker? The very first thing that I think about, and probably that all pharmacists should think about when putting patients on neuromuscular blockade, is adequate sedation. This is huge. Paralyzed patients should never be on light sedation or a sedative agent that's going to provide light sedation like dexmedetomidine. 
because you can't achieve your desired level of sedation in those patients, which is a ROS of negative five to negative four. Patients should never be able to remember when they're paralyzed. We do know that if patients remember the experience, oftentimes this can result in things like PTSD. Uh, so obtaining a strong and reliable RAS assessment prior to in initiation of neuromuscular blockade is absolutely essential. And having those discussions with your nurses can really ensure that you're taking care of your patients and preventing some of those negative sequelae. Also, sedation should not be titrated during paralysis, since again, those RAS scores are no longer reliable once paralytic uh, agents are initiated. And then more objective measurements of consciousness like bispectral index monitoring or BIS monitoring may be used. Uh, in which case you would need to increase sedation if readings are elevated. But the data on BIS is extremely mixed and heterogeneous at this time, um, and we personally don't use it all that often at the University of Colorado. So the Acuracis and Rose trials did paralyze patients for a duration of less than or equal to 48 hours and didn't titrate to a specific train of four. However, in my experience, we tend to keep patients paralyzed for a lot longer than this, depending on what respiratory status looks like. And we attempt to titrate to a specific train of four, usually of zero twitches. Uh, now, the problem with this is that we don't necessarily know if there is any improvement or any difference in titrating to a train of four versus just titrating to vent synchrony. Tachyphylaxis can also occur with our paralytic agents, so you may find that patients have escalating requirements over time if you are titrating to a train of four. And we often like to see the P to F or the PaO2 to FiO2 ratio improve to greater than 150 before we would consider removing the paralytic. Or like I said, if we don't see a significant improvement in the respiratory function after initiation of the paralytic, then at that point, I think it'd be reasonable to start weaning or even discontinuing the neuromuscular blocker uh, and try to manage with deep sedation alone if possible. Thank you, Julie, for that description. Another item that I've run into with these COVID-19 patients is the issue of severe delirium after prolonged courses of intubation. These patients have usually needed intubation for quite some time, maybe multiple reintubations, and sometimes have been on the ventilator for over three weeks. And usually that comes with some sort of delirium as sedation is weaned. And I have noted quite a few cases where this delirium can be quite refractory. Julie, do you have any standard approach to how to manage delirium in these patients? That's a great question. And I do think that management of delirium is different for every patient that we encounter. I did mention that avoiding benzodiazepines may not always be possible in this population when we need that deeper sedative agent. However, weaning these agents off first could be really helpful in the long term to allow more time for drug clearance as patients start to wake up. Also, antipsychotics continue to be a mainstay in treatment of delirium. We don't really have great data to actually support the use of antipsychotics, especially in hypoactive delirium, but we definitely use them anyway, since their properties and mechanisms do tend to be a little bit different than our sedative agents. Haldol is a great drug for acute agitation or delirium, and quetiapine can be utilized if patients are taking uh, meds enterally. And then another great tip that I picked up during my training is that if you want a longer acting agent, but patients can't necessarily take meds enterally or they don't have enteral access, then an ODT olanzapine could be the solution to that problem. Other agents are being used more frequently in the ICU now also for agitation and delirium, things like valproic acid, and then novel sedative agents like ketamine as well. I think all of these agents have their own great aspects, uh, and it's truly a patient-specific decision as to where you start and where you go. 
The 2021 ACCP Spring Forum will be held virtually on April 26th through April 30th. ACCP's nationally recognized preparation review and recertification courses in pharmacotherapy and critical care will be offered to prepare you for board certification. Check the ACCP website for more information. Finally, as we get more information and become more familiar with treating these COVID-19 patients, it's important that we continue to optimize the things that we know improve ICU care and mobilization for these intubated patients. We know that the ICU Liberation Campaign, or the A through F bundle, that was proposed by SCCM in 2014 has a clear positive impact on ICU patients, which then fostered its global adoption. While COVID impacts some of the A through F bundle, would you be able to describe, Julie, what we can still optimize for these patients to improve outcomes? Definitely. So much of our management should be exactly the same in the COVID-19 world as it is in our other critically ill patients when it comes to the ABCDEF bundle. However, I'm sure we've all seen the impact that this pandemic has had on our usually excellent patient care. Uh, deeper sedation, for example, is often required because it's difficult to enter the patient's room frequently enough to assess their true sedation needs. And then a lack of PPE is so limiting to our RNs and RTs as well in this way. And usually SATs and SBTs or spontaneous awakening trials and spontaneous breathing trials are so important in the management of our mechanically ventilated patients to facilitate extubation. But again, not as easily done in this population. This similarly limits our PT and OT staff, which means that early mobility isn't always feasible. And I think that the biggest impact honestly comes from a lack of family interaction. Families aren't able to see the ones that they love at bedside uh, to support them through this illness. And this leads to a lot of frustration and honestly sadness from family members and healthcare workers alike. Video conferencing and technology is being utilized whenever able. iPads are being brought into the room to be able to FaceTime or Zoom or WebEx their loved ones, but the lack of interaction is still so harmful to the prognosis of the patient and to goals of care discussions as well. Thank you again, Julie, for going through that combination of how the A through F bundle can still be used in these COVID population patients. Now, we covered a decent amount of information today on the podcast. Would you be able to provide the listeners a quick summary of what we've discussed today? Absolutely. I'll leave you with this. Analgo sedation is A1. Always use an analgesic first. Deeper sedation and even neuromuscular blockade may be required for vent synchrony, but if paralyzed, always sedate heavily and do not titrate. Prevent delirium with non-pharmacologic methods when able. Open up the blinds during the day, close them at night. Give patients back their hearing aids and their glasses. Just orient them as much as possible. But antipsychotics and more novel agents like valproic acid and ketamine may be used for agitation. And while I didn't mention this above, everyone just please remember to be kind. We're all experiencing burnout like never before, and we all have a huge part to play in taking care of these patients. So just being as supportive as possible to all of your colleagues is so important. Amazing message. Thank you so much, Julie. We really appreciate being on the podcast with us today. Anytime. Again, thank you so much for having me, Christian. And I'm so happy that I got the chance to do this today. Thank you for listening to this month's episode of the ACCP Resident Fellowship Podcast, a podcast for residents by residents. For more episodes and other resident fellow resources, visit our website at www.accp.com backslash resfell.
Thank you for listening to an ACCP podcast for residents by residents. Our theme music is titled Jupiter Smile by the 126ers and is provided through YouTube's free audio library. Please subscribe to the 